The Beat Church, bringing you messages of inspiration, hope, and freedom. Turn up the volume and get ready for the truth that will set you free. Um, we're going to jump in today. Uh, we're dealing with something that right now is a hot topic, I guess you'd say, a controversial topic. Uh, we're dealing with abortion and pro-life. So it was online. If you don't want to be here for that, now's your chance to leave. Uh, I'll give you a chance to just flee the door. It shouldn't be a controversial topic, though. Uh, it shouldn't really be something that would be a hot topic. And so, you know, so are you going to preach on something and talk about something that's, you know, so divisive? It really shouldn't be divisive. And my job is as a pastor is to preach from the Word of God, is to teach from God's heart. And so that's what I'm going to do today. Um, if that offends you uh, in any way, whether you are pro-choice or pro-life, I'm sorry. I'm going to try to stay as close in the Word as I can. Um, are we good? And so that's my heart. That's what I want to do. And so I'm going to have lots of Scripture to go through, and we're just going to run through this stuff and believe that God is going to speak to us. But let's pray first. And just ask that the Lord would uh, give us his truth and his wisdom today. So, Father, we just thank you, Lord, that you are here. God, your word says that you would send the Holy Spirit who would lead us into truth. Lord, who would convict us both of sin and of righteousness, Lord, what's wrong and also what's right. Lord, we need your guidance on that because you are the one, Lord, who has made everything. You're the one who uh, defines truth. You're the one who defines, Lord, right, wrong, Good, evil, all these things. So, Lord, we just ask for your presence today. Lord, in your wisdom, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so pro-life. Now, I'm, I'm titling this pro-whole life, which is a little bit different. We'll get into that. What's the difference between pro-life and pro-whole life? I'm going to dive there a little bit. But starting out, we're just going to really, we're working through this very basic. We're going to start at the beginning. We're going to work our way through because in today's world, it seems like we need to do that. But uh, Genesis 2, verse 7, we're going to talk about where does life come from? Because where life comes from, that answer absolutely will determine a viewpoint on whether life matters and when it matters. So Genesis 2.7 says, Then the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and man became a living being. So the Christian, the Jesus follower... Uh, most of us in this room, some of us may not be, but the, the, the biblical Christian Jesus-following view is that God is the one that gives life. That is the God-centered view. The God-centered view is not that we're an accident. It's not that we're just a result of particles colliding and we came from nothing. It's a different worldview altogether. If you don't start from that worldview, you will not come to the same conclusion or the same answer. You just will not. Our conclusion, our answer that we come to is absolutely based on this fundamental first truth that God is the giver of life. If life comes from nothing, if life comes from death, then a return back to death really doesn't matter because it was all an accident anyway. So this first point is absolutely a necessary point, and it's why the Bible starts there. The Bible starts in Genesis talking about the source of life, and we believe that God is the source of life. John 14, 6 Jesus answered, now it's coming into the New Testament, Jesus himself talking. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not just the way, this is my way to heaven, not just the truth, this is right or wrong, but that he is literally the life. So in Genesis, we see that God gives life, 
And then here Jesus declares that he is actually life itself. He is the very source of life. Not only does he give it, but he is the source. It's where it all comes from, which would give it tremendous value and significance. Well, then the question is, when does God begin to care for life? That's a big debate and a big topic in the world. Well, when does life start? When does it matter? We have politicians that say, well, that's above my pay grade. I don't know. Science is catching up, and the more science there is, the, the better ultrasounds get, the more that we can actually see in the womb, the more we realize, hey, there's, a, there's fingers, there's a face, there's a baby, there's a heart. This is a real life. Well, here's what the Bible says, Psalms 139, verses 13 to 16. It says, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. The Bible's declaring that right inside of the womb, it's very clear inside of the womb that God is knitting together, that he is actually creating life, that he's already intimately involved in the development of every single human being. He already cares. He already knows. Science has caught up to that. Science is always trying to catch up to the Bible, actually. It's catching up to that, that as they discover DNA and they look at DNA, they're realizing, do you know what? This is like a sequence. This is like something's actually been designed. This has been like made. This is, it's all the plans are in there. This is almost like it's being formed or, or, or put together by something intelligent. Like, yes, yes, it is. God has designed and put that in place. Every person's significant. If you were born into a family and you didn't have parents that told you you were significant, if you grew up believing that you weren't significant, if you were abused or mistreated and people said you were an accident, I had a cousin whose dad always told me he was just an accident. Always, you were an accident, man. We didn't even mean to have you. All the time. Total accident. And he grew up with that feeling and that belief. Well, do you know what? You weren't an accident because literally inside of the womb, God knit you together. Your DNA already had all these things planned out about you. My DNA had planned out about me that no matter how many times I go out in the sun, and no matter how slowly I go out in the sun, that at the end of the day, I will burn, I will flake off, and I will be pale white. <laughs> it's in my DNA. I can't escape it. I just went to Cancun, had a wonderful time, and I was slow in the sun. Krista and Lucas were there. I covered myself in 50-proof sunblock about 1,000 times a day. More sunblock than I drank water. <laughs> and look. I'm peeling. How is that even possible? It's in my DNA. I just made it like that. Parts of my legs are peeling that never saw the sun. They were literally under my shorts. I'm like, I'm peeling there. What? Because my whole body knows. He went in the sun, quick, alert, peel. It's inside the DNA. The way you were designed, God designed. There's some things you can change. There's some things you can never change. It's you. It was on purpose. It was intentional. You had value. You mattered. Because maybe your parents or somebody else didn't care about you, but the God of the universe that created everything cared about you, knew about you, protected you, watched over you, brought you out of that situation that you were in. That's why you're here today. A lot of us have come out of some tough and difficult situations. But it goes on and says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in a secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. 
unformed. I and mean, this is at the beginning. This is, at, this is at the beginning of the conception, the beginning of this baby being born. It's still unformed, and yet God saw it, and God started knitting together, and God started putting together. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them even came to be. So the biblical view is that God is already not only giving life, the source of life, but he is involved in life even at the beginning stages. That's the Bible. Well, who wants to take life away and who wants to give it? John 10.10. 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He's talking about the devil. I came, Jesus is talking about himself, that they may have life and have it abundantly. There's two different things. One that wants to take life, one that wants to give life. Okay, God is the giver of life. Not only life, but life abundantly. Not life of tragedy, not life of poverty, not life of, of just misery, but a life of abundance, internal abundance, physical abundance. God wants us to live a life where we are full and complete from the inside out. Okay, this is the groundwork. We haven't even gotten into the message. This is the groundwork. And now we're going to pause. Okay, because so we're going to pause because I know for a fact that inside of this room, just statistically speaking, that there is absolutely no question that there are two different people here. There are people here who have had an abortion, and there are people here who have pressured someone else to have an abortion. That's a fact. And you're probably sitting here right now thinking, oh my gosh, why am I here? Okay, I'm pausing right now just to tell you that we're going to go through this, and there's not going to be a point where I'm going to say, hey, this is great, and this is amazing, you know, whatever you want to do, because I'm teaching from the Bible. But I will tell you that I, as, as a pastor, I have known both men and women who have suffered emotionally, mentally, throughout their life from that decision. And there is forgiveness for all things. Jesus, on the cross, literally, as the most innocent person that ever lived, as he hangs there on the cross, he calls out, Father, forgive them. The Bible says all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You do not need to spend the years of your life in absolute forgiveness. I can't, but Jesus does. So what he died for, that's what he rose for. So the Bible says that in him there is now no condemnation. You can be free from that like we can be free from any other choice that we've made. So I'll just leave you with that. That's between you and the Lord. I'm going to move on to this message. But I just want you to know that this is not a message to condemn or beat somebody up. Because through Christ, there's forgiveness for all things. Amen? All right. In a perfect world, wouldn't that be wonderful? In a perfect world, I would tan. In a perfect God-centered world, the topic of abortion and birth would not even be controversial. But we don't live in a perfect God-centered world. We live in a broken, human-centered world. That's where we live. And so what's that look like? Well, a God-centered world, it's full of righteousness, peace, and joy. Jesus said that. He said the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost, right, in the Holy Spirit. Through God's Spirit, there's righteousness. Everybody's doing what's right. There's peace. Well, there's peace because everybody's doing what's right. Everybody's kind. Everybody lets the other person go first. Everybody takes care of each other. Everybody gives each other an equal gift at Christmas, right? Everything's equal. Everything's wonderful. Peace because everybody loves each other. Okay, so there's that. Joy. Well, of course there's joy. Everyone's loving, caring for each other. Well, what's a human-centered world? It's 
full of selfishness, sin, abuse, brokenness, pain, suffering. It's all over the place. You don't have to go very far to find pain, suffering, or abuse. Some of it's minor. Some of it's major. If you've got kids, you know that there's some kids out there that have minor things like no food, no clothes, they're being abused. But your kids have major things like they're asked to do chores. They're told to put their shoes away. I mean, major stuff, right? Hardcore things. But there are real problems, real suffering. There's real issues out there. And those enter into this conversation about life. Well, what are some of those real issues? Well, what about women, the woman who's raped? What about the one who's living in, not just has been abused, but is living in an actively abusive situation? Actively abused. Right now, she's in a, a terrible, terrifying place and pregnant. Or the one that was raped and got pregnant that way. Or the one that has no resources. They're afraid they'll wind up on the street. There's no way to provide. They have an addiction. There's something going on. The one that's born into a cycle of tragedy where there's just tragedy all around in the family and brokenness and, and just everything is tragic. What about the father who will abandon the responsibility and leave everything to the woman to deal with? This is, the, this is really the environment that these conversations are being had in. Well, that's not, that's not our problem. That's their problem. It's life. They should have thought about that. They should take care of it. Well, here's Ephesians 2, 12 to 13. It says, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. Talking to believers. There was a time when you were separate from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. What's the commonwealth of Israel? It's just the body of Christ, the family of God. Because Israel's not necessarily a nation in this aspect. It's talking about the faith the faith family. Because there's Israel, but Abraham was the father of Israel. He's the father of faith. The Bible talks about that, but it goes into really saying that real, the true Israel is people who have faith in God. So at one time, you didn't have faith in God. At one time, you didn't know God. He's reminding them. Why would he need to remind them? Because it's so easy once we know God and our life is in a certain way to say, oh, well, look at, you know, you should know this. You should understand this, or you should understand that. You should make the same decision. You should think the same way. But he's reminding them, remember, there was a time when you didn't know these things. You were strangers to the covenants and the promises of God. You were without hope and without God in the world. You know, we look at difficult situations, and we say, well, God works all things together for good. You know, don't you know that? God works all things. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They're plans to prosper you, not to harm you. They give you a future. It's hope. Everything's going to be good. Well, we have the promises of God. We know the promises of God. We're in his word. We understand that, not only because we've read it, but because we we know it because he lives and he moves and he breathes within us. Reminds us of it personally. But there's people who don't. There's people who don't know that. There's people who don't even know that they're purposefully made by God. They don't believe that. They don't understand that. They do think things are an accident. It's survival of the fittest. It's whatever's going to happen is going to happen. They don't have promises. They're living in tragedy. Their parents were in tragedy. Their grandparents were in tragedy. And their future is probably tragedy. They don't have the problem. They don't have that view. They don't have that perspective. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. That through Jesus' death and resurrection, we've been now brought into this place. Well, it doesn't matter. Life's hard. They're going to have to deal with it. They have to figure it out. I I just want to say, we're speaking to the church right now, to us. Okay? 
I don't think that answer is good enough. I don't think that's a Jesus answer. I think the Jesus answer is, is more difficult, more challenging. As followers of Jesus, we need a better response and that's life. They're going to have to deal with it. There's not a, it's not enough to be against sin. The Pharisees did that. If you read the Bible, the Pharisees were the religious leaders and they went around making sure that nobody was doing wrong. Of all types of wrong. Murder, rape, stealing. I mean, any type of wrong. Like they're doing something wrong. Dishonesty, adultery. I mean, whatever. They're, they're, they're making sure nobody's doing wrong. It's not enough to be for righteousness. They did that. They made sure everybody was doing all the right things. They were crossing all the T's, dotting all the I's, living just right. But Jesus rebuked them. He rebuked them for falling short. Not falling short in what they know, but falling short in what they did because they, they actually built a wall between other people and God. It says in Matthew 23, 13 to 14, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourself nor allow those who would enter to go in. Now, let me back that up, because that sounds really harsh. First of all, if you were a Pharisee, it would make sense to shut the kingdom of heaven in some of those faces. Kingdom of heaven is righteousness, peace, and joy. If somebody's trying to get in, and they're a, they're a sinner, they're, they're, a, uh, they're a rapist, a murderer, they're a thief, a liar, an adulterer, whatever the case might be, and they're coming, wouldn't you, wait, shut the door. Shut the door. Can't let people in. But Jesus is rebuking that because the kingdom of heaven is meant for everyone to be able to enter. Not, not just of our own, free, our own free ability. Oh, I can do it. I'm in my own strength. But through the cross. Through the sacrifice of Jesus for all of our sins that anyone can enter. Because he's paid the price. And so those conversations that they had were not leading towards the hope and the opportunity that comes through the gospel. They were just leading towards shutting the door out. They were built on anger. They were built on opposition. They weren't built on love. They weren't built on service. They weren't built on lifting. They were built on pushing down. So you slam the door in their faces. You would allow no one to come in. As followers of Jesus, we're not called to easy solutions. We're called to God's solutions. Which we saw through Jesus often require great, great personal sacrifice. But before we get there, I want to go over these three things. Pro-choice, anti-abortion, pro-life. I just want to kind of define these for the conversation. Pro-choice, I got two definitions. For one, pro-choice in the world, it really means that the dominant individual has the right to choose. I mean, at the core, that's what it means. Now, that could be the mother. Sometimes it's not. Even though she may be the pregnant one, sometimes a dominant individual may not even be the mother. It may be the person that they're with who may be an abuser. Maybe someone who's pressuring them, coercing them, pushing them. Could be their family. All the pressure, everybody pushing and saying, you, gotta, you can't do this. You're going to destroy the family. You're going to destroy the family name. You're going to destroy... And they could be somebody that doesn't have the courage or the strength to move forward. So sometimes it could be the woman. Sometimes it's not. But it's nothing to do with them being the dominant person. There's so many other forces pushing. They feel they have no choice. They give up. It also does not always mean if someone's pro-choice that they're pro-abortion or that they're anti-life. Someone can be pro-choice and say, I just think everyone should be able to make their own decision. But personally, I am pro-life. 
And personally, I want to see babies cared for. But I just don't want to make everybody else's choice. It can also at times mean that they are very pro-abortion and they want babies to be, you know, killed and gone. And there's people that have that type of an attitude. That's true. That's reality. That's not always the heart that somebody's coming from. It doesn't make it right, but it, they're not all under the same label. Everybody doesn't have the exact same view. There's variances. But pro-choice as a believer, let's talk about that, because that's the part that we're responsible for. That's the part that we live in. For a believer, choice happens at salvation, which is our surrender from rebellion against God in all of the areas of our life. Me, I was an alcoholic, full of anger. I didn't like people. Didn't like myself. Didn't want to do any of the things that God put on my heart to do. God wanted me to serve and to love people. I didn't like people. I didn't want to like them. I didn't want to love them. I didn't want to serve them. I didn't want to see them. I had a rebellion against God. My choice then was I had to give myself to God and surrender and say, you know what? I give up. I surrender my life. That's repentance. I repent. I turn away from how I'm living. I'm going to live in your way. I'm surrendering to your kingdom, to the way that you want to live, to how you would do things. You're the one that's going to decide what's right and wrong for me. That's the choice as a believer. As a believer, we're surrendering not to our will, but to God's will. That's the choice that we make. My body, my choice is not a believer statement. Not just with abortion. It's not a statement when I want to watch pornography. It's not besides my wife or go out and just get hammered on a Friday night. It's not a statement when I'm going to go and sleep with someone besides my wife or when I'm going to decide I'm going to get angry and chew the guy out at the, at the Home Depot line. It's not my body anymore. It's God's body. I've given the rulership and the reign of my life to God. And so I am now his. And so when I do those things, when I watch my shows, when I do different things, I'm saying, is this something that you would want me to participate in or to do? How do you want me to live? And I make decisions based on that. And it's not always the decision I would make on my own. There are so many times in my life that I would make a totally different decision than what God makes. Because I still am a person. I don't even want to go to church every Sunday. And I'm the pastor. But God called me to do it. And so I got to go. And you guys always have people at your home. I don't always want to have people in my home. <laughs> I don't. You come in, house gets trashed, they leave and it's filthy, toilet's clogged. Thank you, Lord. I just love it. <laughs> Sometimes I don't love it. Sometimes the doorbell rings, and I'm like, they're here. <laughs> That's just the truth. But this is not my body. It's not my choice. I live for God. I used to live for myself, and it's miserable. It led me to bad places. Places of regret and torment, unfruitful, unproductive. 1 Corinthians 6.20, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. 
going into abortion, pro-life. This doesn't just apply to the woman. This applies to the man. You made a child, easy to walk away. Your body, your choice. I don't want to be involved. I don't want to be a dad. I'm moving on. You don't have that choice. Not if you're a believer. The Bible says if you're a believer and you don't provide for your family, it actually says, the verse that says that you are worse than an unbeliever. God doesn't recognize you. God isn't caring for you, loving you, blessing you. All your prayers to be blessed are going unheard, unanswered. Why do you keep struggling? You're struggling because you're running from a responsibility that God gave you. It's not your body, your choice. God gave you a responsibility to go take care of that kid. He's yours. That's your job. It's your responsibility. If more men did that, less women would feel that they need to have an abortion. That's just the truth. Okay, so before throwing stones, make sure, as Jesus said, that you don't have sin of your own going on. That's a word for all men. Romans 6, 17 to 19, but thanks be to God that though you once were a slave to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were committed. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. The word is saying that there was a point in life where you were a slave to sin. Literally, you just made choices that were against God's will and purpose, and you really almost had no ability to make a different choice. Has anybody ever been there besides me? I've been there. I've been there thinking, stay calm, stay calm, stay calm, stay calm, stay calm. And the next thing you know, I'm getting in a fight at an ATM machine outside of a bank. Totally against what I wanted to do. I was telling myself, don't do it. But I'm still doing it. Slave to sin. Felt no escape. But it says, now you've been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness. Again, who's, who's the owner then? We're not owners of ourselves. We're servants. We're indebted to God. It's his will. It's his plan. It's his purpose. Just as you used to offer your parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to escalating wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. Lord, I want to do it your way. Lord, I want to do it your way. I choose to do it your way, even when I don't feel great about it. There's also anti-abortion, which is against wickedness. The Pharisees were passionately against acts of wickedness, but Jesus' description of them wasn't pleasant. Matthew 23, 4, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. The point that Jesus was making isn't that the wrong that people were doing was okay. It was that those religious leaders were putting those things on people and constantly reminding them of where they're falling short, constantly reminding them what's wrong. But then when the person says, I'm struggling, I'm hurting, I need help, they were unwilling to get into the mess to help. It's your problem. They'll say, my body, my choice. A lot of believers say, your body, your problem. You deal with it. But that's not the call of a believer. That's not the heart of God. We know that in the story of the Good Samaritan. Some walked by with a busy place to go. One came by, you know, the valley of the Good Samaritan where this guy was ambushed and beaten up, robbed, 
And people were walking by, leaving him there, crossing the other side of the road, going around it. Well, the reason, if you actually read the history on it, the reason is because that valley was a known place where people were robbed. And you don't travel it by yourself. And some dumb moron decided to do it on his own, got beat up and robbed and laid on the side of the road, and other people passing by, it would be so stupid to now put themselves at risk by going to help this guy who should have known better. But the good Samaritan actually puts his own life at risk to stop and help, and then his own money and time at risk to go take back that person to get health and to get help and to see a doctor and to get taken care of and does it at his own dime, his own risk, his own expense, and it wasn't his problem, and the other person should have known better. But he put everything at risk to go help. And that's the story where Jesus says, man, this, is, this person's the one that lived right. This is the person that really loved their neighbor. This is the person that really cared. And so there's a call as believers to walk differently. What's the difference between anti-abortion and pro-life? One condemns the brokenness of the world. The other enters it against, and I'd say against all odds to bring healing. Get involved in a messed up situation, a messed up life, a struggling place. And you know what? Against all odds, we're going into a crazy world full of darkness and chaos and all kinds of drama and saying that we want to bring healing and hope and we want to bring restoration. That is against all odds mission. It is difficult. It's difficult at times just to try to keep your own family in order. Anybody ever struggle with that? Just trying to keep your own family in order. Let alone trying to get involved in someone else's life that's struggling. It's against all odds. We're doing it. But here's what Jesus did. John 3, 16, the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. We all know that verse. Famous verse. But notice, people were struggling, and God's love moved him to action to get involved sacrificially to express that love through service and sacrifice of his own life. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. Again, laying down life, sacrifice. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ gave his life, sacrificed that, not only in service, but in literal death, not when we were doing okay, but when we were sinners. The Bible's whole definition of sinners and how it lays out sinners is people that are opposed to God. They're at enmity with God. They're warring with God. They're in rebellion. They're against God. It was at that point that he laid his life down. And we think of other people and choices they make or things that they're doing and say, well, yeah, if they change, then I would show them some love or some care. I'd try to help. Man, they're bad people making bad decisions. That is what Jesus came into. That's where we were. And he rescued us out of that at the expense of his own life. Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The holiness is about living right. The sacrifice is exactly what it says. It's about sacrifice, suffering, a little bit of pain, inconvenience, difficulty, challenge. It's not easy. We have people in this church that have taken in people that are going through recovery. Not always easy. 
We have people in this church that have taken in people through adoption, through fostering, not always easy. But at their own inconvenience, at their own risk, putting it out there and saying, you know what, I'm going to do this. That's a living sacrifice. Philippians 2, 6 through 8, talking about Jesus here. It says, who though he was in the form of God, did not count it equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So he came down, became like us. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He suffered and he died for people making terrible choices and terrible situations and difficult circumstances who didn't even want him to come. That's why they killed him. That's how against him they were. And yet he still laid his life down. Well, I don't want to interact with people that that have a different view than I do, or try to love, or try to help, try to serve, because they're against us. They're against us. They talk bad about us, about how terrible we are, that we hate women, we oppress women, we just want to control women, they hate us. They hated Jesus. They oppressed Jesus, but he still kept pressing in with service, and with love, and with care, and with sacrifice, to lift and to help. We're called to speak the truth in love. What does that mean? As followers of Jesus, our calling is to walk in both truth and love, we're to love and support life, even to the point of getting in the mess alongside of the broken, the hurting, and yes, even the willful, the willful sinner to lift them up. Even some of you, they're not broken, they're not hurting, they're doing well, financially great. It's just a career move. We're still called to find a way in to serve, to love, and to help them through love and service to hopefully make a choice that promotes life. Ephesians 4.15, instead we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. Well, what does that mean, speak the truth in love? If you go in the Greek, the words, here's the definition of those words. Speaking is the speaking reality into a person's life, making a record of what God deems is truth. That's what speaking truth means. That's the actual definition of it, is to speak truth. And to put it on record, like, you know, when you're in court or something, you say, hey, I want to go on record as saying, is to go on record with God's view. That's what it is. To speak the truth is to go on record with God's view. Not your view, not your opinion. To speak the truth is to speak and to go on record with what God's view is. This is how God sees this. And to lay that out in is a condition or a state in which something operates from inside within. Now, the key word to me there is operates. It actually operates from it. It's not just in, like it's in a box. It's actually operating from there. It's active. It's doing something. There's an active component. We don't just speak with our words, but we speak with what? Our actions. Everybody knows actions speak louder than words. So when we speak the truth in love, we're speaking the truth not only with our words, but we're speaking the truth in our actions and how we're responding, how we're interacting, what we're doing. Love, benevolence, goodwill, esteem. Benevolence is to give something that's unearned or undeserved. It's hard enough. Well, sometimes that is the case. Sometimes somebody's in a jam, and benevolence gives not because they've earned it. They didn't turn in a time card. It gives because it's giving out of generosity, out of benevolence, out of unearned kindness. So speaking the truth in love is to speak it and to give kindness where kindness hasn't been earned, to give love where love hasn't been earned. Goodwill, esteem, to lift up. Many people that are going through these decisions, they're going through it and their esteem is down. Been beaten up by life, beaten up by others, scared. 
And somebody to come in and to offer goodwill and to lift them up, to give them esteem. You can be a great mom. You can care for this kid. We can walk alongside you. God's put value in you. God's put value in your kid. You can do this. To speak esteem and to lift up. The Jesus pro-life message looks like speaking God's truth along with action that bestows benevolence, goodwill, esteem on the person whose life or actions are currently far from God. Just coming alongside saying, God loves you. I know you're trying to make a decision that for you is tough. It's not tough for me. For you, this is tough. I don't understand how it can be tough. It's simple to me. But I'm not you. I'm not in your shoes. I'm not walking in your skin. But I'm here, and I want to love you, and I want to help you, and I want to walk with you. And to actually come alongside and to offer that. The world's a dark place. Jesus called himself the light, and then he called us to be the light. So here's how that played out, an actual passage in John 8, 2 through 12. At dawn he appeared, Jesus is talking about, again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman that was caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, we're commanded to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger, and when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard it began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until Jesus was left with the woman standing there. He doesn't okay or condone, but he does say this. It straightened up and he asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. He's still not saying it's okay. But he does say, then neither do I condemn you. Why? Because there's no condemnation in Christ. There's freedom. He wants to set free. He wants to bring new life. He wants to empower and to lift. And yes, to make the right choice and decision in every area of our life. But he says to her, go now and leave your, your life of sin. So go do the right thing. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life couple things there. He says, one, I am the light of the world. The world's dark, confusing, and hard for people to live in. And he says, I am the light. But then he says, follow me. In other words, what? We're going to do this now together. Right? Isn't that what following means? Hey, it's dark. I'm the light. Follow me. Implication is stay close. We're going to work through this together. Come on. Let's go. Let's go. It's dark. We're going to walk together. That's Jesus, but check it out. Before he goes... He passes that same responsibility and that same calling and that same definition on to us. Matthew 5, 14 to 16. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. He already modeled how to do it. I'm the light. Hey, follow me. Stay close. We're going to get through this together. Okay, that's him. Okay, now he puts it towards us. You are the light of the world, a town built on a hill that cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead... They put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Good deeds. That's a commitment to walk it out with somebody so they can actually see the light of God through your actions towards them in their life. 
That's how the light shines. That's how it comes out. It doesn't come out because we stream on Facebook. No, we streamed on Facebook. The light's out. It comes out because they're walking with us in their dark place and seeing his light in our life as we minister and we walk with them and we care for them. As followers of Jesus, we're called to be the light by living love and glorifying God through our actions. Early Christians, they didn't receive the name Christian because of what they believed. They originally were called the way. It was the way. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So people that followed him, they followed the way. They were actually given the name Christians by the Romans. And as a way of describing them, because Christians means little Christ, people that look like and act like Jesus. They act like Christ. So they were literally given the name because people were watching their life and going, those people look like that guy that we killed. They disappeared. They live like he lived. They remind me of him. And so that is what a Christian is. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to live in such a way that people would say, man, if Jesus was here, I bet you that's what he would do. Man, if Jesus was interacting with that woman, I bet you that's how he would do it. If Jesus was caring for that person, I bet you that's how he would live. And to walk that out, we know from Jesus' life that he did it through great sacrifice. What does that look like in our time, in our place? It looks like the Darugis. Mandela and his wife adopted three kids under the age of three. From sport car to minivan in 24 hours. Boom. It's like that. <laughs> Rolled into men's Bible study. Looked out the window. I said, I didn't even know that was you. He goes, yeah, to get a van. We're picking the kids up today. Boom. Looks like that. Looks like the Schmitz, Fred and Elizabeth, adopting and fostering kids, opening their home, taking people in. Looks like the Gus who've adopted it's like Heidi and Carolyn and April who serve and love and care for moms and dads and babies in need at the pregnancy center and go over and volunteer and help. Looks like my wife who's placed, literally helped place multiple, multiple adoptions into families at great expense of both time, energy, and some money. One of those, by the way, was a situation with a completely schizophrenic mother it was also a drug addict who had my wife there at the delivery and was freaking out because she thought she was being tricked into giving up her baby because five minutes before she was begging her to come be with her. And then when she was there, she's like, why are you here? You're always trying to steal my kids. And just a short time, a month or two after the baby was born, she was found dead under a bridge. And that little kid was born with club feet and went to a family who immediately took him and got him surgery. And he's, I believe, seven or eight years old now. Incredible little athlete kid running around. He wouldn't have even been able to walk. But it looked like being willing to get involved in the mess. I remember being home. I remember the night she comes home crying, stressed out. She's like, she thinks I'm trying to take her kid. Maybe I should just leave her alone. But then she calls me back and wants my help. Like, what do I do? I'm like, I don't know. Whatever you have the grace to do. I mean, you got to figure it out. <laughs> I mean, do what you got to do. Watched her go through the whole thing. Sacrifice, sacrifice months and months and months and months and months. And then going through the grief of finding out that this girl that she walked with all these months has now been found. She would have had to deal with none of that if she just left it out. Hey, it's her problem. 
But she got involved. And out of that involvement, God produced life that's going to produce great things. But it took involvement. It took real hands and feet getting in there. It looks like Anastasio, who stayed as a single dad and took care of his kids, refused to, to give up on that. And he cared for them and loved them. If you know his story, he shared his testimony here before. But his wife who had abandoned them, abandoned the kids, and he takes care of the kids all these years. She ends up getting sick in the hospital. And Stosh goes in, massages her feet, and the hospital bed cares for her, leads her to Jesus. And then she goes home to heaven. It looks like being willing to forgive and to move forward and to say, how can I be a part of the solution? How can I help? How can I do something? It looks like Brandon, who's overcome addiction and issues. And Brandon, we're pretty open and vulnerable here. Brandon has kids living in different places. But I talked to him. He's like, man, I got my child support due this week. He cares about his responsibility. He cares about taking care of those kids. Now that he knows Jesus, he cares about stepping out and saying, you know, I'm going to do my part. I can't fix it, but I'm going to be involved in trying to do the best that I can do. It looks like Pastor Art, who spends his time over here at the boxing multiple nights a week, loving on kids that are at risk, praying for their moms, praying for their families, investing in his life. He could just be retired right now, staying home, living the good life. He's got a nice house out in Georgetown, sitting on a little piece of land. There's some donkeys and goats out there. Do you have a hammock out there? You need one. <laughs> I would have one. But instead, he comes in here all the time and helps and works with kids that he doesn't even know to be a part of the solution. That's what it takes. There's generous givers in our church who give and say, Don't ma nobody ever knows my name, okay? But the generosity and the finances they give allow us to do some of the things that we do to help people that are hurting and suffering. Without the generosity and the giving, it wouldn't happen. It takes this whole collective effort to be a part of a solution. And so why am I taking this approach? I'm taking this approach, one, because I think it's biblical and it's Jesus. But also because there are laws that are changing. Whether you want them to change or not, there's laws that are changing. And the reality of that is that there is going to be more babies born. Praise God for that. But the reality of that is a lot of those babies will be born into difficult situations. Difficult family situations, mothers in difficult spots. That's just the reality. Well, yeah, but they should have made better. That's the reality. And some of them, man, I ran a single mom's class in Washington, and we went around the room, and I did the first night I ever ran it. Now, I've not always been the greatest at skills and words, how to learn how to do stuff. But I sat around. The first thing we did the first night, Carolyn, this is what we did. Sat down, room, circle, all the women there, just me, I'm the only guy. I said, all right, let's do an icebreaker. Let's go around the room and just say how you became a single mom. Madison's like, ooh, what the heck? I did it. I lived. I'm here. <laughs> my impression, I'll just tell you this. Growing up, you know what my impression was? They all became single moms the same way. They all were floozies. They all were just out there hooking up with dudes, and they got what they deserved. Like, that didn't come from my parents. It's just stuff I heard around, right, even as a kid. So that was just, that's how it was. So we go around the room, and I find out, whoa, I was wrong. 
This one had a domestic violence abuse situation that she had to run from. And this one, her husband died overseas on tour in the military. And this one, around the room, one of them was a mom that was just a single woman who adopted an autistic, like a kid with major needs. Not just, you know, like high-functioning autism, like really serious needs. And she adopted, took him in her home. Now she's a single mom. It was such a diverse thing. It's like, whoa, it blew my mind. I'm like, well, I'm totally screwed up, Lord. I need some help. I don't learn. I learned the hard way. I'm glad I asked the question now because it helped me change my perspective very quickly. But there's a lot of babies that are going to be born that wouldn't have been born otherwise. And there's a lot of families that are going to be going through the difficulty of figuring out how do we be a good parent? How do I pay my bills? What do I do in this situation? And so as believers, I know that many believers have prayed and believed and say, Lord, let this happen. Lord, let this happen. Okay, well, now, okay, prayer answered. Now what? Now what? Now I believe that God would call us to step into the mess and be a part of the solution, to lift up and to build up lives that otherwise would, would have a lot of struggle. What does that look like? What this looks like is much bigger than what I would explain, but I'm just going to invite you guys, whoever would have a heart for this, to be a part of helping us develop this. As I just felt like the Lord put on my heart to start a Beat Life Support Task Force. You can put that slide up, guys. It's not up there yet. And that would be a group of people to get together and say, hey, how can we, and to talk this out, because I don't have the answer by myself, but to talk it through, how can we support moms? How can we support dads? How can we offer support for couples, babies, adoption, fostering? What does that look like to really get involved and to actually offer support and to be part of the solutions in these areas? What's that going to look like? And to really think that our church already has a heart for it. It's already happening. But I'm talking about in a more defined, intentional way. We already have the single mom's oil change. We have the Father's Day for the fatherless. We have a foster closet upstairs. We have families that are adopting. Like, it's already happening. I'm just talking about in a more defined, a more structured way where we really take as a church and we say, you know what, we, we know this is coming. The Bible says the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. People are coming. Not just sinners converting, harvest, but life. How can we be a part of the solution if there's a mom that's struggling, doesn't know how she's going to be able to survive? We have great single moms here that say, man, I've, I, it's hard, but I've, I've seen how to do it. I can share my experiences so you don't have to start from scratch. We've got men here who have, have plugged in and said, you know, I'm going to be a part of really taking care of my kids. You know, Alec is doing that right now. Alex come out of recovery and all kinds of stuff. And he's like, man, one thing I'm going to do, man, I'm going to get sober. I'm going to get right. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to take care of my kid that I had. I'm going to do it. And it's been a struggle, right? But you're doing it. Okay? More men need to do it. But you can offer something to say, hey, this is how I'm doing it. And we can come together and help form some solutions, help people understand how to get, go through the adoption process, how to go through the fostering process to open their homes. Like how to become a part of a solution in whatever way that you're skills, abilities, gifting, calling allows you to be a part of that. So the number up here, if you want to be a part of that group, it doesn't mean you're committing long-term to do something. It means you're a part of 
talking through, hey, how, how could we do this? What would it look like at the Beat Church? Then just text that number, and then here in the next week, we'll get a hold of you and just say, hey, here's a date. We're going to get together, and we're going to start having these discussions and talk this through. And we can be a part of the solution and do what Jesus would do, which is actually say, hey, this is how we're going to put our lives into the mess to help bring people up out of it. Amen? God has a call on us as believers to live like Jesus, and that was really a sacrificial way to live. And it was a beautiful way to live, and it brought blessing and brought joy. The Bible says that he was anointed with gladness more than all of his, all of his companions. A life that lives to serve is a life that's full of joy, full of peace. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, I just pray right now for, Lord, us as we, Lord, lead today. God, I pray that we would each be, Lord, challenged, Lord, to, Lord, not only support life, but, Lord, support it in a way that, Lord, maybe is deeper than we imagine. Or maybe a way that's deeper than what we have in the past or than what we thought of. Lord, your word says in Ephesians 3.20 that you are able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we could ask or imagine through your power that's at work in us. Lord, help us to do something great or to support or the life of these new babies and of these families, these moms, these dads. Lord, and to lead them to you, Lord, that our works would truly glorify God and direct people to you. Bring people into heaven, Lord, rather than closing the door. I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, thanks for being here. Take the next step and visit www.thebeatchurch.com and get connected with a community committed to applying these truths in their everyday lives. You can also give now to support our messages by visiting www.thebeatchurch.com give.